Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to Murder in the Land of Oz. Oh, whoa. I'm Jess. What? <laughs> theme song. Theme song. It's been one of those days. It has been. It's been one it's of been those one of those. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's been one of those. Yeah. yeah. Hello. I didn't say hello. Hi, there's Ellen. She's in Hobart in her bedroom. I can see her jackets because <laughs> we are looking at each other over Skype. <gasps> Um, so we're under season four, so we're in Tasmania, the land of the land of crazy people and um, the former tiger that doesn't exist anymore. Thank you to everyone who's like left really lovely reviews on the Apple iTunes. We were having a real deep, dark moment where we were just getting a bunch of bad reviews. So it was nice to get some good ones. I mean, you know, you guys take the good with the bad, but there were a few ones that I thought were a wee bit mean. The tendency to derail one was, um, it sort of hurt. It hurt because it was true. No. We're derailing right now. But like, that's the point of a podcast, isn't it? I'm not sure what the point of a podcast is anymore. (laughs) Fair enough. Um, So, yeah, thank you to everyone who's left really lovely reviews. It's been great and people reaching out and um, tagging us in their Instagram stories, which is so cute. It's so cute. Um, But, yeah, so season four, Tasmania. Mm -hmm. Um, I was unorganized. So I was meant to have the first episode out, but I wasn't ready because my life has once again fallen apart, but that's okay. My life fell apart a couple months ago, so I I could pick it up. You could pick it up. You could pick it up. up. Whereas I am not in a position to pick anything up at the moment. Um, Yeah, more on that later. But um, (laughs) more on that in Mitlu after dark. More on that for our Patreons, because we got a Patreon and you can pay to listen to extra stuff. Yeah, maybe we should do Mitlu After Dark. I feel like that would be insanely funny. Yeah. we. I feel like we should do that after this, because I feel like there's chat time that we need to do anyway, so we might as well give it to the folks at home. Oh, man. Okay. You reckon? I think that would be great. Maybe they want to get to know us a little bit. Sure. Let's do a quiz. Oh, my God. Sign up for the Patreon-only content and we're going to do a quiz. Ellen and I will do a quiz. All the Patreons are like, tonight. no, 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 no. We wanted crime content. <laughs> no, 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 no. We just, we just wanted the extra crime content. Please, 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 please. Please don't do this. Please don't do this. Too bad. <laughs> okay. So sorry, we're in charge of this. We can decide what we're going to do. We- I do have a Patreon little snippet to talk about. Uh, Jonestown. Oh. So if you're interested in finding out about Jonestown, is you that can our subscribe to the Patreon on content. Exclusive content. This is our next Patreon episode that we didn't it's, discuss. Um, the series, the Patreon series of Jess uh, reads a book oh. and then decides to look at the Wikipedia page of a cult and tell you about it. <laughs> <laughs> And then Ellen and Jess do a quiz and Zane's looking at, at me going like, I have been up for several hours already. You will not be leaving my house before 11. Fantastic. Zane just but that's okay. Us. So Ellen, you're kicking off the Tasmanian season, yes. which I kind of think is apt because you live there. I do live in um, Tasmania. Just in case yeah. that point's been missed at any point during the recording of any Unless you episode. haven't heard me screaming in my house or on the general street, because uh, I have told many, many people that my best friend just moved to Hobart and I'm really not fucking stoked about it. Uh, Ellen lives in Hobart. Um, so what is our first episode of, of our first Tasmanian episode going to be about? So our first ta- Tasmanian episode was going to be a completely different case that I started writing 
and then found this case as just like a footnote. I think it was in the Wikipedia article, and I was like, what's this man's story? And then when I read the Wikipedia article, I was like, well, fuck that other case. This is this is taken over. This is better. So I don't know how I have never heard about this case. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard about it, Jess, but... No. It was the subject of a documentary called The Fisherman, which came out in 2006 on the ABC. And it is the story, the story that I'm about to tell you. Um, but it Ooh. is about this man. His name was um, James O'Neill. And James O'Neill was a prisoner in Hayes Prison Farm. I'm going to go like, I've, cr- I've created a bit of a narrative with this one, Jess. So if Ooh! you could like not jump in and like take spoil it. it. <laughs> Um, okay, so he was a prisoner at Hayes Prison Farm in the 1990s. So Hayes Prison Farm was constructed near New Norfolk in Tasmania in 1937. The facility was, it was a farm, so it was 2,000 acres. Um, it had an orchid um, land for grazing cattle and a forest. And the, the purpose of the farm was to kind of give inmates like agricultural skills and, you know, life skills and stuff like that to equip them um upon being released with some actual, you know, practical skills that they could use. It was a minimum security facility. And in its heyday, the farm had a market garden, 1,000 pigs, 1,800 hens, 2,000 sheep, a dairy herd, and a clay processing plant. Um, they would sell the clay to potters in Salamanca, and the produce was sold to a number of contractors, including the Royal Derwent Hospital, the Royal Hobart Hospital, St. John's Hospital, and various, like, government departments. And, of course, it... Um, was given to the prison itself. So the prison was decommissioned and closed in 2012 and it was sold to a private investor in 2015 and all the inmates that were still there were transferred into Risdon Prison. So in 1998, an article appeared in the Mercury, which is the Hobart newspaper, that was talking about the fact that a number of these prisoners were allowed to leave the facility unsupervised to go fishing in the Derwent River. Um, I beg your pardon. Yeah, so these these prisoners were allowed to leave the prison with no supervision and go out and go fishing. Yikes! Of course this was in Tasmania. (laughs) (laughs) Tasmania, the original prison colony. Um, They were like, yeah, the whole island's a prison. Where are they going to go? Swim to the mainland? Don't think so. (laughs) Um, so one of these prisoners that was allowed this leave of absence was a man named James Ryan O'Neill, and he was serving Tasmania's longest sentence for a single crime. He had been transferred to the minimum security facility from Risdon in 1991, and the article reported that he had had no criminal convictions prior to the crime that had landed him in prison in Tasmania. So this article caught the attention of retired senior detective Gordon Day. Big time cop. So he, had, I think he was from Tasmania, worked in Victoria, came back um, after he retired to live in Tasmania. And um, in the early 90s, he had been approached by this freelance journalist whose name was Janine Widgery to possibly do a story about O'Neill, but Davey didn't really think there was anything in it until he read this article a few years later um, that claimed that O'Neill hadn't had any prior convictions. And Davey thought that this was suspicious because he, in his opinion as a detective, he didn't believe that somebody could get to the age that Davey was, which was 27 when he landed in prison, without having any committed any other crimes. So what did O'Neill do? In yes, f- I am intrigued. In February of 1975, a nine-year-old boy called Ricky James Smith disappeared in Eagle Hawk Neck, roughly 80 kilometres south of Hobart on the Tasman Peninsula. He had been walking to the corner store, um, but he never home. So the police were called, a search was organised, and O'Neill, who was at the time the barman at the Lufra Hotel in Eagle Hawk Neck, joined the search, and he was eager to offer tips and assistance to the police. But Ricky's body was not found during the search. A few months later, in April of 1975, panic struck again. Nine-year-old Bruce Colin Wilson was a paper boy who had gone to the shop to pick up a carton of milk. He'd gone missing in Warrain, which is just over the bridge from Hobart. Bruce's body would eventually be found in Bushland near Risdon Vale some months later. And at this point, the media had gone into a bit of a frenzy, um, suspecting that there was a child serial killer operating in the area. And due to the similarities between the two murders, the police were pretty sure they were looking for one killer. And in the weeks between the murders of Ricky Smith and Bruce Wilson, at least two other children were abducted by a Caucasian man but managed to escape without severe harm. 
So in late March of 1975, a 14-year-old boy was walking from Granton to New Norfolk when a man drove up alongside him and offered him a lift. The boy agreed. The man then drove through New Norfolk without stopping. The boy asked to be let out, but the man refused. The man then asked the boy if he would like to earn $10 and demanded that the boy sit closer to him. The man began touching. This is... I probably should have put a warning at the start of this episode. This episode talks about crimes against children. If you do not want to listen to this, please stop now. Listen to the quiz on the Patreon. Stop now. (laughs) (laughs) Or don't. (laughs) Okay, continue. Um... Back to this incredibly serious story. Um, So the man asked him to sit closer to him and the man began touching the boy's legs and genitals. The boy began to cry and the man said that he would turn around, but he didn't. Instead, he drove the boy onto a dirt road near a national park. The boy said that he needed to go to the toilet, so the man stopped the car and the boy jumped out and slammed the car door on the man's leg when he tried to follow. The boy escaped by running over a fence and down a hill out of sight of the car. When he was then, he then hitchhiked back to New Norfolk, where he immediately made a statement to the New Norfolk police. Sweet baby. Then in April of 1975, roughly two weeks before Bruce Wilson vanished, a 10-year-old boy named Lionel Paramore was abducted. He had been walking by the old church in Sorrel, which was only 20 kilometres away from where Bruce Wilson would be abducted two weeks later, when a man drove up beside him in a car and stopped. The man told Lionel that he was a policeman and that he needed directions to the nearest police station to drop off some papers. He told Lionel to get into the car to direct him, and after some hesitation, Lionel and Can I just, agreed. like, Lionel, like, children, an adult yeah. will not ask you for help, ever. For directions, yeah. Or, like, yeah, oh, I need exactly. your help doing this thing. Nah, get wrecked. That's what you say, mate. Yeah. Oh. Nah, get wrecked. To any children yeah, listening stop to this listening, podcast. But, I, you know, there might be. You never know. You need parental supervision. You never know. Um... So Lionel directed the man to the police station, um, but the man turned against Lionel's directions and Lionel tried to jump out of the car. The man grabbed him by the arm and forced Lionel closer to him into the middle of the seat. Lionel then put his foot down hard on the brake, but they did take down his registration number. So there's there's five known incidents, two of which resulted in murder, four of which were abductions and one of which was an attempted abduction. Um, and James Ryan O'Neill was pretty quickly identified as a suspect um, in the murder of Ricky Smith. And basically, from then on, the investigation like totally focused on him. He tried to skip town, but the police located him and his wife in a hotel in Launceston. So then he told the story to the police. So on the 4th of February 1975, O'Neill was on his way to pick up his wife and newborn son from the hospital when he saw Ricky Smith playing in a waterway in Eagle Hawk Neck. He offered Ricky a lift in his car, where he then drove him to the bush near Cunha, some 15 kilometres away, took him up an isolated dirt road, sexually assaulted him, then bashed him repeatedly with a rock, killing him. He left Ricky's body there in the bush, and later on, when he led the police to the location, he actually stood on the remains and said to police, there it is. Like, didn't call, it Rick, didn't call him Ricky, didn't say, here's the body, he said, there it is. So on the first of May, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, on the first of May, nineteen seventy-five, O'Neill was interviewed then about his involvement in the murder of Bruce Wilson, and the signed record of the interview showed that O'Neill confessed to killing Bruce after hitting him on the head repeatedly to shut him up. Two days later, on the third of May, Lionel Paramore identified O'Neill as the man who had abducted him a month prior, and I don't know what the fuck they were on in nineteen seventy-five, but they have like the lineup of people. And the kid was physically in the room and had to go up and, like, touch the person. Get wrecked! Yeah, he had to go up and actually, like, touch him on the hand. I don't know. No, you do that behind glass and you say that guy in the shirt. That's the man who did it. Like, Like, oh, my God, that freaked me out so much when I read that. Um... And then the 14-year-old boy who was indecently assaulted also identified James O'Neill as the perpetrator in a lineup a couple of days later on the 5th of May. The 12-year-old boy who had taken down the license plate of the man who tried to abduction actually um, pointed to another man but said that he wasn't sure because he only saw the man through like the windscreen of the car. But mm. the registration number that he took down matched Jim O'Neill's car. So the evidence was pretty damning. Um, O'Neill was charged with both Ricky and Bruce's murders, but in accordance with Tasmanian legislation at the time, he was only tried for the murder of Ricky Smith. And he used... Because of the... 
Well, it just was a law that said that if you were, like, charged with two crimes or two or more crimes at the same time, you would only get charged for one. Like, you would only get tried for one. I assume if you were found not guilty of that, then you would get tried for the one after it. But I I assume it's just to save money in court costs, not trying to convict somebody a million times. What are you doing? <laughs> I just don't like no, that. No, I don't like that either. Jess is just, like, cradling like her own head in a very strange way. <laughs> <laughs> so at trial, yes. he tried to use the insanity defense to get away with Ricky Smith. We're bored. He, <laughs> he claimed that a gunshot wound <laughs> to the head he sustained in 1969 had caused a personality disorder and blackouts that meant that he was not cognizant of committing the crime. Um, he would also later claim that he had been beaten and had a gun put to his head by police before he led them to the body of Ricky Smith, um, which was obviously denied by the police. Um, three psychiatrists and a psychologist identified that O'Neill had homosexual pedophilic tendencies and that he had likely murdered Ricky after Ricky began to panic or tried to fight O'Neill off. And then according to Gordon Davey in the trial, one of the psychiatrists implied that it was likely that O'Neill had been sexually assaulted as a child himself, possibly by somebody close to him. Davey also mentioned that O'Neill had had a violent, a history of violent fantasies of arson and cruelty to animals. So it took a jury three and a half hours to find O'Neill guilty of Ricky's murder, and he was sentenced to be imprisoned for the term of his natural life. Um, and although he is only like legally convicted of Ricky Smith's murder, he's considered to be responsible for the murder of Bruce Wilson as well. So Jim O'Neill, as I said, was 27 years old when he murdered Ricky and Bruce in 1975. So when Gordon Damey came across O'Neill over 20 years later, he was pretty convinced that a person just didn't become a child serial killer at the age of 27 and that he had to have committed other you'd, crimes. You'd be right in that thinking. <laughs> well, yes, you would. No, that's the end of the episode. Bye, everyone. Um, Goodbye. So Gordon Davey actually wrote to James O'Neill and asked for permission to interview him, which was granted. So over a period of four years, Davey would go up and speak to O'Neill at the Hayes Prison Farm, recording hundreds of hours of interviews. The two men bonded over their love of fishing, and Davey find him, found himself getting on quite well with O'Neill, even though he didn't trust him. Davey kind of became convinced that when the two of them would reminisce about their fishing trips... He believed that O'Neill wasn't actually thinking about literal fishing trips. He believed that fishing was kind of like the euphemism that he used for committing crimes. So they would have these conversations about, you know, oh, yeah, I went to this location and the fishing there was amazing and, you know, we did this, that and the other thing. And Davey was like, he, he, he's not talking about fishing. So that's why the, the documentary was called The Fisherman. So, um. right? So after it all makes it sense. all makes sense, and also because he was fishing in the Derwent River, which is how the whole thing came up. So after after recording all these interviews, um, Davy was like transcribing all of the information, and he did a little bit of investigation on the side, and he unco- uncovered a pretty disturbing pattern. So Davy found out that James Ryan O'Neill was born Lee Anthony Bridgart in Melbourne, Victoria, in 1947. Ooh. <laughs> It's a name change. Okay. Nothing sus. (laughs) Nothing sus here. It's It's fine. fine. So for the sake of clarity, I'm going to keep on calling him O'Neill in this podcast. Um, So O'Neill had a pretty troubled relationship with both of his parents, particularly his mother, but he he had a pretty fancy education, actually. He went to Brighton and Caulfield Grammar School and Scotch College. Scotch College is like the fanciest like boys school in Melbourne. Um, but he um, He was not a big fan of school and he ended up following in his father's footsteps and working in real estate after he left school after year 10. He then became a gun dealer and allegedly was involved in Melbourne's underworld. Um, Ooh. Oh no, we bit spicy. In 19... Spicy. In 1965, Bridba- Bridgart began working as an opal dealer and between 1965 and 1968, he made dozens of trips from Melbourne to Cooper Pedy in South Australia to purchase raw opals to sell to jewellers. In 1969, as I mentioned before, a business partner of O'Neill's accidentally discharged a gun and the bullet struck O'Neill in the forehead, entering his skull. 
He was operated on and was in hospital for five weeks. He then contracted meningitis and had to go back to hospital for an additional four weeks. And the injury caused damage to his right frontal lobe, loss of smell, loss of hearing in his left ear and impaired vision in his left eye. O'Neill would also allege that after this incident, he would undergo blackout periods where he would be incapable of remembering anything done, anything that he'd done for varying lengths of time. So following this trail, Gordon Davy eventually found the evidence that he was sure he would find that in 1971, O'Neill was charged with 13 counts of abduction and indecent assault of four boys between 10 and 12 years old in Victoria. Fuck me! Oh my god, that's so many. I know, 13 counts. That's a lot. It's a lot. So, um the circumstances of these abductions were basically identical to the crimes that um O'Neill would later be convicted of. So he stopped the boys like these are all at different times, but the pattern was basically the same. He stopped the boys walking on the side of the road and asked them for directions to a nearby railway station. He asked the boys to get into his car, drove them to a remote location and sexually assaulted them. Some of the boys managed to escape the assaults while others were driven back to the site of the abduction by O'Neill. Somehow, so he was like arrested and charged with these crimes. He somehow made bail. Victoria, you had such fucked up bail things. So weird. Every single, they're like, even to this day, I don't know what you what you have to do to not get bail. <laughs> Like, what do you have to do? Kill the Prime Minister? You can, you can fucking do anything and they'll be like, oh, we'll give him a shot. Bail. Um, no. It's terrible. It's absolutely terrible. Cuff him, boys. Cuff him, boys. Bake him away, toys. So he was granted bail and he immediately fled the state, um, going as far away as he possibly could to Western Australia, where he began calling himself in Western Australia, despite having no prior pastoral experience. He called himself a drover. <laughs> I don't know why you're laughing. <laughs> well, it's like, I've never fucking done this before. May as well give it a go. It'll be fine. Well, he, he tried to pass himself off as a drover. So he got a job in these cattle stations. He was like, you made him a drover or whatever. But he couldn't ride a horse. <laughs> <laughs> what a dickhead. What a dickhead, right? <laughs> but he was also a pathological liar. Shock. Oh. So as well as like lying his way into jobs at various cattle stations, he also told like a bunch of lies about his past. So he lied about what jobs he'd had, what experience he had. He said he was an accountant and a lawyer and all these things. Um, and he also Dem some big fibs, some big fibs. And he also lied about how he got the injury on his head, which is pretty obvious. A gunshot wound to the head leaves a pretty obvious scar. He told some people that he was a Vietnam veteran and had been shot at. Others, he told that his mother's boyfriend was a gangster and had tried to kill him, or that he was an ASIO spy. (gasps) That seems logical. Yes. That seems like the most logical one, doesn't it? Seems likely. (laughs) Seems likely. He was an ASIO spy and now he's a drover who can't ride a horse. (laughs) (laughs) What a twit. (laughs) So... So it's not really known where he is, like, specifically between 1971 and 1973, but he's up somewhere in the Kimberley. Um, He comes back into the record in 1973 when he snags himself a job as a storeman at Fossil Down Station outside of Fitzroy Crossing. Um, Here in Fitzroy Crossing, he meets Carol, a young woman from Tasmania who is working as a barmaid in the Fitzroy Crossing Hotel. They got married in October of 1973, and then um, O'Neill's O'Neill goes to work in a station in a place called Derby. Then he comes back to Fitzroy Crossing um, to work at a Department of Agriculture station. So in his investigation, Gordon Davey discovered a story about the unsolved murder of a young Aboriginal boy in the Fitzroy Crossing area in 1973. So the body of a young boy is found wrapped in barbed wire and attached to a oh, log. Oh, fuck you. Fuck yes, you. Yes. In a tree. Not fuck Ellen, but fuck this guy. No, fuck, fuck me for telling you this story. Um, it was, the body was actually found in a tree, like by the riverbank after the water level went down. So I, I assume the body was tossed in a river and then got stuck in a oh. tree. And then when the yeah water went down, they saw the body. There was no um, official inquiry into this murder and the police wrote it off as a tribal killing. 
oh, fuck you. Oh. Yeah, and so he he interviewed in the in the documentary, which I will not link because it's illegally available on YouTube, but you can just find it if you search The Fisherman. Um, he interviews one of the police officers who I think was working in the Kimberley region at the time, and he literally, like, I'm not going to say the word, but he, like, u- uses a slur, basically, to talk about it. Gordon asked him if there was any unsolved crimes at the time, and he was like, nah, nah, nothing like that. Oh, just a murder of a insert word here, boy, you know, who's wrapped in barbed wire. But that was just that was just what the people did at the time, you know what I mean? Gordon Davey was like, oh, gross. Um, so while working at Fossil Downs, O'Neill was known for messing with local Aboriginal girls. He would actually bribe young, and by young I mean like children, I mean underage Aboriginal girls, with food and drink for sexual favours. He was eventually... He was eventually let go by the owners of the station due to this behaviour. And it was also around this time in 1973 that he began bragging about something very strange. Now, the people who were working with him were like, well, he lied about being a drover. He's lied about all these other things. So they weren't necessarily that, like, convinced when O'Neill started bragging that he was responsible for the murders of the Beaumont children. So, (laughs) if you don't know... The disappearance of the Beaumont children is one of the most well-known cases in Australian history. We will most likely cover it. Um, the, dif- the disappearance of Jane, Anna and Grant Beaumont, aged 9, 7 and 4, from Glenelg Beacon Australia Day in South Australia in 1966 has never been solved and the investigation continues to this day. So it may sound like the kind of thing a person who lied about being an ACO agent would lie about, but as Gordon Davey discovered, the timelines match up. So... Davy and O'Neill discussed many times the period of time that O'Neill worked as an opal dealer driving up from Melbourne to Cooper PD in South Australia as many as 15 times between 1965 and 1968. During these conversations, O'Neill would shy away from any specific detail about his time in South Australia, even refusing to mention that he'd ever even been to Adelaide until Davy asked him directly about what towns the road to Cooper PD ran through two years after they began speaking. When Gordon asked him directly if he was responsible for the murders of the Beaumont children, O'Neill, O'Neill said that he couldn't have done it because he was in Melbourne at the time. But he didn't actually say, No, I didn't do no, it. No, I am not the Beaumont children murderer. It's not official that the Beaumont children were murdered, but Let's, like yeah. they were. <laughs> Let's be real. And while Davy couldn't place him directly in Adelaide on Australia Day of 1966, it was known that he was travelling frequently through there around the time period. And he was also known to the South Australian police. So there was a letter that was found from the South Australian police sent to the Tasmanian police after O'Neill's arrest in 1975. And this letter implied that he was a personal interest, a person of interest in the disappearances of Joanne Ratcliffe and Christy Gordon, which is another one of Australia's most well-known missing persons cases. You might know it as the Adelaide Oval. Oh, I was like, that sounds so familiar. Yeah, so these two girls, Joanne was 11 and Christy was four. They were both at Adelaide Oval um, and they went they went missing in August of 1973. So the letter didn't say, we reckon he's gone and done this. They just mentioned like an abduction of two girls in that time period and also an additional two abductions that, um, of children in Adelaide in this time period that the letter seemed to imply that he was a person of interest in. The... South Australian police in the letter said that they had been looking for O'Neill since he skipped bail in Victoria in 1971. So to Gordon Davey, this only reinforced the fact that he was a likely person of interest in the abduction of the Beaumont children. Whether or not O'Neill actually committed those murders, he was certainly telling people in Fitzroy Crossing that he did. He was eventually fired in June of... Why do you brag about that shit? (laughs) Why? I mean, I can understand why somebody would brag about being a Vietnam veteran ACO spy because he wants to seem tough. But, like, why would you brag that you were a murdered child children. murderer? It's like, um... Also, like, he Cool, I'm going to tell the cops and you're going to go to prison. Cool to brag about. Why not brag about the crimes he actually committed? Um, yeah, so he was, invi- he was fired in June of 1974 yeah. and got another job oh, at right. a station oh. in Derby again. So he went Derby, Fitzroy Crossing, back to Derby. Um, while he was also doing some research work for the Department of Agriculture on the side. 
He would sometimes be working 200 kilometres away from Derby for days at a time, working in extremely remote locations. He would use the Department of Agriculture Ute to drive to and from these locations. So while James, well, Jim O'Neill was living in Derby, a young boy went missing after he went down to the local shop to buy some soft drinks and snacks for his family. So on the 29th of August 1974, 12-year-old Jimmy Taylor walked the 500-odd metres down the road in his school uniform with bare feet to a deli near his house. He was last seen in front of another shop nearby called Elder's Store where he was seen talking to a Caucasian man in a ute. His family initially thought he must have met a friend or relative and stayed overnight somewhere, although they were were concerned as the family had a strict rule that everybody had to be home by sunset. Jimmy wasn't reported missing until September 5th, 1974. There were scattered sightings and reportings of Jimmy after this time, but they were not found to be credible. And the police eventually decided that Jimmy must have run away from home after arguing with his father and the investigation ceased. Um, I'm not going to shock anybody by saying that Jimmy Taylor was Indigenous and therefore basically explains why there was no real investigation into his disappearance. So only a couple of months after Jimmy Taylor disappeared in late 1974, O'Neill and his wife, by now several months pregnant, moved to Tasmania. Only a few months after that, O'Neill would be imprisoned for the murder of Ricky Smith. So... Gordon Davey and Jim O'Neill had been chatting for many years by the time the documentary The Fisherman was eventually made. After years of investigating into the man who had kind of become his friend, Davey realised that the patterns were too obvious to ignore. The documentary was due to be released in 2005, but O'Neill filed an injunction saying that the documentary was defamatory and may hurt his chances of ever paroled. Not that that was probably bloody likely anyway, considering he was a child murderer. Not gonna happen. Um, so the Tasmanian court agreed with O'Neill and the documentary was shelved until the case made its way to the Australian Supreme Court, who found that the documentary was indeed not defamatory and that it was in the public interest to be televised. It was eventually released in 2006, where it was seen by the family of Jimmy Taylor. They were shocked to learn that a convicted pedophile and child murderer had been known to be living in the town where Jimmy disappeared, and they appealed for the case to be reopened. After investigation, a coronial inquest into Jimmy's death was eventually undertaken in 2014. So the coroner established that Jimmy most likely had been murdered and that O'Neill had definitely been in the area and that O'Neill had definitely committed crimes similar to the circumstances that happened to Jimmy Taylor, but stopped short of finding O'Neill responsible for Jimmy's death, instead stating that there was circumstantial evidence that he had done so and that it was indeed likely that he had done so, but it was not determinable beyond a reasonable doubt. O'Neill was questioned during the inquest and he denied that he committed the crime. Um, One of the main witnesses during the inquest was Lionel Paramore, who was the 10-year-old who was abducted by O'Neill in 1975. This is in 2014, so he wasn't 10 10 anymore, he was an adult. But O'Neill also denied having anything to do with Lionel's abduction, which is insane because Lionel identified him in a lineup. Um, So this is also where O'Neill claimed that he only showed the police where Ricky Smith's body was and only confessed to the crimes after being the victim of police brutality to which there was no evidence. So justice was not really found for Jimmy Taylor, but it's, I don't know if I would go so far as to say it's like basically assumed that O'Neill did it, but like you've got to wonder what the likelihood of there being multiple Caucasian men with youths abducting boys in the small town in the Kimberley in 1973. Like, what are the odds, really, that there would be more than one running around abducting boys on the way to shops? I think it's pretty... Pretty I think unlikely. That, I think it's pretty clear that he did it. So another thing that the documentary un- uncovered was eyewitness testimony from a murder that O'Neill allegedly committed in Joanna River in Victoria in 1962 when he was aged just 15 years old. So the witness is interviewed at the start and the end of the documentary and she stated that she had seen a child's bloodied body in O'Neill's car and that he had threatened her that he would shove something up her bum and get rid of her, like they'd gotten rid of the child in the car if she'd mentioned what she'd seen. So I did a little bit of research, um, and by research I mean Googling. (laughs) Because I'm not a real journalist. Oh my God, Zane, that's the new quote for the T-shirt. I've been doing a bit of researching, and by that I mean Googling. Okay, that's on the books. Zane nodded, so it's officially happening. You can get yours now at Tea Public. (laughs) Um, Well, I did my best to find if there was any unsolved 
any missing children or any unsolved homicides from the area in 1962, but I couldn't find any records. That A, doesn't mean anything because, again, I'm not a real journalist and it's not like I have, like, you know, a federal database to look through. Um, But also there are no records to be found about the boy, the other Indigenous boy that was murdered and wrapped in barbed wire in 1973. And that murder definitely happened. There There are people who remember the murder happened. There were police officers who knew about the murder who've spoken about it, even though there's nothing really to be found online. So it's not impossible. It's definitely not impossible, in fact, that there could have been a child who died in the area in 1962. But your girl didn't find any of that evidence. Your girl. I, your girl being your Ellen. Girl. <laughs> your, gal. your girl being m- Moy. <laughs> um, but if you watch the documentary, I find the witness to be incredibly credible. Incredibly credible because she was effing distraught telling the story. She was oh. so distraught. And she was also very like – she. There was definitely stuff that you could tell that she could remember quite strongly and there were other things that she was like. And then I can't remember what happened, but then I'm pretty sure I said something like this. You know, when people are trying to, like, make up stories about things, you you often find that they over-add detail, you know. Like, um, never mind, I won't go into that. But I found her to be very credible. So that brings us up to the end of the documentary. Um, I thought, because I jumped back and forward a little bit through time, I thought I would lay out a bit of a timeline from start to finish of the alleged or suspected crimes of this man, Jim O'Neill. So first known possible crime, 1962, age 15, possible murder of a child in near Joanna River in Victoria. Um, he went to the Joanna River area pretty frequently on fishing trips and things like that with his father so he the area was known to him he knew people in the area it's very possible um then 1965 we have o'neill who's now aged 18 traveling back and forth frequently from melbourne to cooper pd and then in 1966 the beaumont children are abducted from glenelg beach and i just wanted to say as well this is probably incredibly important um so Gordon Davey and also Richard McCready, who was the former Tasmanian police commissioner and was also one of the initial um, investigating officers of the Ricky Smith murder, both thought that he was a pretty good prospect for the murder of the Beaumont children. But the South Australian police actually did interview O'Neill in 2005 and ruled him out as a suspect. Really? Really. I, I am not 100% sold on whether or not he did do the Beaumont children. I think it's possible. Um but I think it's incredibly likely that even if he didn't do the Beaumont children, that he did something in South Australia to get on the police's radar. Definitely. Definitely, because they were looking for him when he was arrested in 1975. So when he got picked up in 1975, they were like, that's the bloke that we have been looking for since at least 1971 when he skipped bail in Victoria. So to me, that means that between 1965 and 1971, he did something in South Australia to put him on the police radar. Whether yeah. that was the Beaumont children, maybe that it was something else. But I think eventually, maybe with DNA, I don't know. Maybe eventually he'll be linked to something there. So then in 1969, um, he was shot by his business partner and underwent surgery. Um, a lot of when you, if you go further afield and research this case, a few blogs talk about how it was from like this incident that he began you know, being violent and stuff like that. It caused him to be violent and everything like that. But the, like, psychiatrist during the trial identified, like, antisocial behaviour before he was ever shot in the head, like, from his childhood and things like that. And also, he possibly murdered somebody at 15. So I think it's quite inaccurate to say that the shot to the head caused him to be a murderer or a pedophile or whatever. But that's what you will read on some blogs if you go have an investigate. So then up to 1971, arrested and charged with up to 13 counts of abduction and indecent assault on boys in Victoria. And although he never, like, went to prison or was charged or anything, this crime, it's basically 100%, like, the case that he was responsible. There's no question that he didn't commit those crimes. So then he is completely unknown as whereabouts until 1973 when he turns up in Fitzroy Crossing. And during this period, there are at least two murders of young boys, both Indigenous um, the one who was found wrapped in barbed wire and, of course, the murder of Jimmy Taylor in Derby in 1974. And then... So just to clarify, the yes. boy that was wrapped in barbed wire was never... 
Never, no investigation, no, no identification. I think it's probably likely that he was, his family knew, but this is, you know, like a remote Indigenous community in the Kimberleys. There possibly was never any official records or anything like that. Um, So it's also around this time in 1973, if he was responsible for the Adelaide Oval abductions, he would have had to have done it around this time. I think the Adelaide Oval abductions and the two other cases from 1973 that the South Australian police talked about are probably the least likely crimes that he could have committed because he was definitely working in Western Australia at this time. And I I did say that he there were long periods of time where he would be away from Derby working for the Department of Agriculture, but Adelaide is like 4,000 kilometres away. Long way away. It's a long way. It's a long way. Long way. And I just don't think you would drive all the way to Adelaide to pick somebody off, off Adelaide Oval if you were, you know, a child murderer looking for a fix. You could probably find something a little bit closer to home. Mm. Um, and then that puts us up to 1974 when he and his wife moved to Tasmania. They stay near Hobart for a few weeks, then he gets the job at Eagle Hook Neck, and then Ricky Smith goes missing around three months later in February 1975, followed by Bruce Wilson, April 1975, and then the abductions in the weeks in between. So that is the possible criminal history of Jim O'Neill. I don't know if we'll ever know definitively. I think we can probably say definitively that he was responsible for the murder of Jimmy Taylor because I just think the odds are too great for it to have been somebody else. What do you think? Do you think he did the Beaumont children? Do you think he did the other Aboriginal boy? What do you reckon? I think the the two um, murders of the Indigenous children in WA, he definitely did. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Definitely. I think it might be a bit of a stretch about the Adelaide Oval. The Beaumont children could be a possibility, but I feel like if you're... I feel like it's unlikely if he's bragging about it. Like it just seems so it that sounds like a person who knows that it's not well, you know like it's it's definitely not a thing so they're going to brag about it because there's no way to pin him on it. Yeah. But you I also I mean? just don't understand why bragging about the Beaumont children no, is something I, you would brag that about. I can't that I cannot grapple. Because I think if it's if it's um, like brag Braggadocio trying to seem tough, saying I abducted three children doesn't really prove that you're tough. Yeah. It's just confusing. It just, yeah. But then you're like, it doesn't make sense to brag about it if you haven't done it. It also doesn't make sense to brag about it if you have done it. Mm. But multiple people remember him saying, you know, who he worked with and people that he knew in the town were like, oh, yeah, he said he did the Beaumont children, which is insane. Yeah, a bit of a noodle, I have to say. Definitely a noodle. The thing that the thing when I was like initially writing this, I was like, what are the odds that, you know, there was a pedophile just happened to be in Adelaide at the time and then I realized that there are like how many persons of interest do they have in that case? Like 400 or something like that. Like there are there in are, the Beaumonts. In the Beaumonts. Yeah, there are yeah, too yeah. many people who have been investigated. I was like it's probably not that much of a coincidence at all. Yeah, yeah but I had never heard of this guy before. No, neither. Never. Wild. Absolutely wild. Um, What I think would be very interesting for somebody with resources to do is look at if there were any unsolved crimes between 1971 and 1973 in the Kimberley region. Yeah, looking at, like, young boys. Young boys or young girls because he did um, solicit favours from young Aboriginal women or young Aboriginal girls, so... Which to me is like... It's odd, right? And also it's very, not saying, not discounting that he, not saying that he didn't do it, but it's also really unlikely for someone to kill outside of their race. I think that, yeah, I thought that too, but also I think a opportunity, like especially Kimberly. No, that definitely outweighs it. But also I think that he chose purposefully you know, people that he didn't think would be looked for. Yeah. Wow. That was awful. So bad. So he is still in prison. Is he still alive? Still alive. He got transferred once um, Hayes Prison Farm closed down. Also, if I ever went to prison, sign me the hell up for a prison farm. Yeah, let you go out prison (laughs) farm. (laughs) He had a dog. He had a little shack. It was so nice. He had rats. 
Um, the rats part, not necessarily that nice, but it was a beautiful place. And like, you know, all these like moody shots of like dairy cows and the fog and stuff like that. I was like, that looks fucking nice. (laughs) (laughs) Sign me up. Oh, um, but no, he's in. Please Ris- don't sell them to child murderers there. Please yeah, thank you. Exactly, it looks like a holiday home. Um, but no, he's in prison prison at the moment, and he is mm. yeah the longest serving prisoner for a single crime. But he probably so did a bunch more. Wife, I feel so. I mean, obviously, I feel so sorry for all yeah. his victims' families. Well, his like wife, that, his wife was interviewed in the inquest and was like, "Yep, he wasn't particularly interested in me. He wasn't particularly interested in sex. There was definitely something wrong with him." And she basically was not all that shocked, I think, when, yeah, the allegations came out. Wowee. Wowee. So that's, that's starting us off, starting us off in Tasmania, even though I spend most of the time talking about other places. But I just was so shocked that I'd never heard of him before. And also I've done so much reading into the Beaumont children and I don't remember ever reading his name. Yeah. Cause you want to do the Beaumonts, don't you? I, I would enjoy, I mean... We'll be throwing our episode out into a cast of roughly four billion people that have covered the Beaumont children, but yeah, but the Mitlu, give it that Mitlu touch, give it that Mitlu touch. You know, (laughs) sounds good, stunning. Well, thank you so much for doing the first episode, Ellen. I really appreciate it. Anytime. Um, Do you have anything? Because that was a particularly dark episode especially talking about crimes against children which mm. we don't normally like to do is there something nice you'd like to say about your week just to end on a happier note I mean I've spent the past like four days researching these crimes against children so my my brain is not the most joyous place fair enough at this point in time um yes I apologize for not doing a warning at the start I even wrote at the top of my document make sure to do a warning and I forgot <laughs> um but I will put it in the show notes we'll put it in the show notes yeah, right at the top because I know that you know I generally even though I've seemed to have covered far more crimes against children than I ever wanted to on this podcast I don't like listening <laughs> to podcasts yeah, no. um and I I don't want to be graphic obviously I don't want to no. talk about it in any detail um but I think I think it was interesting, specifically that he committed such horrible crimes against children that he was allowed to. But also, I want to state that Gordon Davy and also everybody who worked on the Fisherman podcast, uh, the Fisherman documentary, um, said that he was a really nice man. O'Neill just seemed like a nice, normal bloke, and that they couldn't believe that he'd done the horrible crimes that he'd committed. Davy believed it, but like some of the crew and stuff like that were like, "No, this guy's too normal." Um, Goes to show. Goes to show what, like, I think a sociopath can do to kind of slip between the cracks. Um, and that that kind of way. And when you do the documentary is recorded interviews with this man. So you can watch it. When I first started watching it, I was like, why are they talking to this farm guy? When, when are they going to get to the stuff about the murders? Because they were just talking about fishing. And I didn't realize that this person was a killer because he seemed so normal up until, you know, about... A, a, a part way through the documentary, you go, no, nah, there's, there's there something cooked in his brain. Something wrong going on there. Wowee. So, yeah. Okay, cool. Yay. Um, I would like to say that I got through the majority of this week thanks to chocolate. Shout out to chocolate. I'm lactose um, intolerant. So. I'm showing Ellen my package of Reese's peanut butter cups that I consumed while sitting with Ellen trying to figure out because my camera on my phone stopped working. Mm -hmm. And as some of you may or may not know, Ellen and I now record. So Ellen records her session remotely. I record mine with Zane here in the pod loft and we watch each other via Skype because we realized when we tried to do it without seeing each other, it was not good. It was not good. It was not good. It did not work. (laughs) So we still get to see each other. Yay. Which is nice. It is nice. Um, And Ellen will be up in a few weeks time. Yes. Two weeks' time? Yes. Stunning. To come and see me. Oh, that's right. I should plug Cluedo. Plug away. Um, so I, for those of you who you probably know, um, I'm an actor. Jess. What? This is who was talking. Um, so I'm an actor and I'm doing a show. Actually, that's something murder related. I'm doing this show called Cluedo, the Immersive Game. So if you're in Brisbane, um, we are running from April 20th. Yeah, Zane is uh, nodding. We have a few shows, um, like previews and stuff like the, that beforehand. It's the 17th of April to the 25th of May, right? 17th of April to the 25th of May. <laughs> Ellen knows this. I don't. Um, so it's on in Brisbane at the Baydecker, which is a 
part it's a bar so basically it's the board game cluedo in an interactive sense so as audience members you get to roam around and chat to the characters and then there's a murder and then it is your job as the audience to solve the murder um so that's something murdery related and that's something that you can come and see if you want if you're in brisbane under no obligation but you know if you want to come and meet Jess from Mitlu and not interrupt her when she's in character but chat to me afterwards, then you sure can. What a plug. What a plug. I've um, seen so it. So I can Ellen has it. seen it. And I'm and coming can, to see it again. So She is and it's going to be a good time. There's music and there's drinks and it's a really good night. So if you would like to, you can. We'll put the link in the show notes if you want to come. Um, thank you everyone for subscribing. We are over five and a half thousand subscribers now, which is crazy. We're, I think we're in the 5,600 mark, which, which is, is insane. so cool. Um, we're coming up on our year anniversary. <laughs> Happy anniversary. Um, which is really exciting and we're really obviously happy that we're still doing this and yeah, it's going to be cool. I'm going to keep doing it until... We don't like each other anymore. I don't think that's going to happen, unfortunately. They're always making new ones. (laughs) Always making new ones. All right. Well, um, also make sure you find us on Instagram at um, Murder in the Land of Oz. We're on Facebook. You can become a Patreon and listen to Patreon-only content. We have a few episodes up now. We're going to do some more tonight that are going to be put up. Um, We, Yeah, you should do that. It's fine. You should do that. That'd be cool and help us source for this podcast. <laughs> help us source for this podcast. Basically, the money going from the Patreon is going to – It's um, fine. Goes towards us subscribing to uh, uh, the to papers basically because it does cost money to subscribe to get um, certain documents and everything about these crimes that we talk about um, and also to the books that we purchase to research. Um, I bought a yeah. real shit one for this episode and there was only three pages on the crime and I want my $5.74 back. <laughs> Not a plug. Not a plug. Same. An anti-plug. An anti-plug. Uh, so thanks for joining us and we'll see you in a fortnight. Hi, for Port Arthur. Port Arthur. It's finally happening. It's finally happening. Ooh. Ooh. All right. Bye. See you guys. Bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.